going to talk about forgiveness tonight. You can't talk for very long about relationships without needing to get to the issue of forgiveness. I think I did mention last week one of the dangers of college, especially being like on a college campus like Belmont where they, you know, at least when you're a freshman, they do a lot of things to try and help you make friends. Um, But one of the things that can happen is you can kind of be friends with people and then some, you know, tension arises and you can kind of move to another friend group. There's always like another group of people you can kind of gravitate towards usually and never really have to learn how to walk in forgiveness and learn about reconciliation. And it gets much more difficult to find friends, I think, after you get out of college. I think college is kind of the last time in your life where there'll just be people around. Now, I don't want that to be completely depressed depressing if like you're like but I don't have any friends now Uh, it's not easy in that sense but it but it really is like you really do have to start learning how to be intentional and proactive and going after people you have to be around my friend Craig Brown pastor at City Church he says the first rule of community is you have to show up you know it starts there Um, and you have to show up I would say not as a consumer Because community is not a commodity dispensed by the church or Christian groups. It's something you have to be part of. Um, And forgiveness is going to enter into that, or else the community isn't going to last for long. And, um, you know, there's a lot of of people that kind of jump from group to group and never have to deal with forgiveness. Um, We don't want that. We don't want RUF to contribute to that. Um, We want RUF to make Belmont a better place. And therefore, whether you stick around RUF or not, I hope that by being here tonight and learning a little bit about forgiveness, that it will help Belmont be a better place. That's that's really our our goal. Um, Because forgiveness is really the currency of the kingdom of God. It's how you got into the kingdom of God if you're a follower of Jesus. It was because you were forgiven and shown mercy And it's kind of the fuel that the kingdom moves forward on. And it's important that Christian community, if it's going to be a true countercultural community, demonstrating to the watching world that there is a different way to live other than just living for yourselves and living to sort of consume other people like you consume everything else, then it's vital that we learn about forgiveness. But it's important that we not just learn about forgiveness, So one of my professors in seminary used to say, the real difficulty of the Christian life, the real difficulty of living as a Christian is not so much knowing what to do as it is finding the courage to do it. And so it's not enough just to say you should forgive people, though the Bible says that clearly. We're going to see in this passage that when Jesus says that, the disciples respond with help. Increase our faith. And then he tells uh, some things that I think are designed to help increase their faith, to help give them the courage, give them the heart capital they need to be able to bear burdens and to forgive. So let's look at our passage. Um, It's in Luke chapter 17. We are going to refer to those other passages that I put on the sheet there in math, in Mark, and also in Romans, uh, briefly as we get into this. But we're going to start out with Luke 17. Jesus says this, So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to Jesus, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. There's a lot of weird stuff in that section in there. If you've never read the Bible before, if you've only ever thought about Jesus as this nice guy who never says anything offensive, there was probably about three or four things that he said there that probably made you go, what? Jesus, like, he called this guy a foreigner? That sounds like a little offensive. We don't, we don't talk like that in our politically correct world, do we? He tells, uh, you know, these people, or he tells this weird story about what seems to be a master taking advantage of his servant, and Jesus seems to commend this and says all of us should kind of take this groveling posture. What do you do with all this stuff, huh? Well, we're going to go back through it, kind of start at the top and go through it, because I think actually all these things are linked together. I'm fond of saying that the Bible never gives us just bare commands. It never just tells us what to do. And in this passage, the way these things are linked together, and, and Luke put these together for a reason, because they go together. They help us to understand not just what we should do, but where we will find the power to do it. Now, forgiveness is, is, is a relevant, relevant topic, isn't it? I don't know what you think you have to, to um, forgive people for, or maybe there's things that you're holding on to that you would say, I will never forgive. I, a friend of mine from college, um, the funny thing is this guy's from New Jersey, I know. Um, he actually, this is rock and roll trivia for you, he actually played with Twisted Sister way back when, before he came to college, right? And um, he also played with Perry Como, you know, in the Catskills. So he's a great bass player. He could kind of do anything and everything. But he's also very opinionated, and um, Facebook is like a great outlet for him because he loves to just sort of spout off of odd things. So I'm always, I was really curious to see, because he, now he teaches at Berkeley College of Music where I went to college, and he... Um, 
is a huge Patriots fan. So I was just curious what he would say on Monday morning, so I checked his page, and this was his post. Unfortunately, I caught a glimpse of that New Jersey Giants love fest in the cesspool that is New York. I felt like I, I, felt like I was being repeatedly slid down the edge of a 100-foot razor blade into a pool of alcohol, all the while being jeered at by Jersey Giant fans adorned in a sea of blue number 10 jerseys. You have stolen my beloved Tom Brady's fourth and fifth Super Bowl rings. For this, I will hate you for all eternity. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was a relevant uh, quote. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've got more serious things to deal with. Um, we can all kind of laugh about that. But, but in a room like this size, I know that there are deep wounds, deep issues, Maybe wounds that seem impossible to get past. Situations where it doesn't seem like forgiveness is even possible. Maybe the person that sinned against you isn't even still alive. What can Jesus tell us that will help us? And and I think the first thing that he tells us to help is he helps us understand what forgiveness is. I've always loved this quote by C.S. Lewis. Everybody thinks forgiveness a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. Everybody's in favor of forgiveness. Um, Miroslav Volf actually has this really fascinating place. Is he Serbian or Croatian? I forget which one. Um, He teaches at Princeton Theological Seminary. But he talks about how, you know, everybody loves to talk about forgiveness, especially in sort of intellectual, academic, more, you know, kind of liberal, modern, Western democracy kind of places. Um, And they talk about forgiveness so glibly. But he says, when you've seen your daughters and your mother and your wives pulled out in the streets and raped and murdered, like he had, you think differently about forgiveness. Everybody wants to talk about how we can just sort of, if we just talked more, we'd just get along and everybody would be friends. The reality is sin is much worse than that. And the need for forgiveness is much deeper than what you can just do in your own strength. Particularly when you begin to understand what forgiveness is really about. Now, I think that the first thing I want to say about it is that true forgiveness, true forgiveness has a particular goal. And the goal is bigger than just getting along with people. Uh, Particularly in the South, we have a lot of people that you might call peace fakers. Jesus, of course, said, blessed are the peacemakers. I'm more on the side of being a peacebreaker, but a lot of y'all are nice, sweet people who are more inclined to want to make peace uh, at all costs. But what Jesus says here about forgiveness um, is something different. Notice what he says here in verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, I think a lot of people, they just sort of, if your brother sins, forgive him. But he actually says, rebuke him first, which means Jesus is committed and wants us committed to stopping the spread of sin. And that's a very important thing to understand if you would understand what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is not just so that you can get along with people. It actually has a much bigger purpose in God's kingdom. Like I said, if you're a Christian, you came into the kingdom through forgiveness, and the kingdom goes forward through forgiveness. Jesus is teaching them about what they need to be about if they would see the kingdom spread. The kingdom is basically the place where you see God's rule 
and everything is right because God is ruling. And that's what the kingdom is about. And he says key to that is for sin, the spread of sin, for somebody to come against it. Now, you may think of rebuking merely as just telling people off. But actually, it really is more coming against sin, standing against sin, and doing whatever you can to stop it from going forward. So the first thing is forgiveness has a particular goal, which is to stop the spread of sin. And honestly, to do that with somebody you know means that your goal has to be bigger than just getting it off your chest. A lot of people think that they're really good at forgiveness because they're really good at getting stuff off their chest and they feel better. Um, but then they wonder why they don't have friends for very long. I actually met a, a guy one time. He was one of our college students. Didn't go to Belmont, but he kind of hung out with our college group. And his mom was convinced that her spiritual gift was writing letters, 15, some 20 letters a week, to people in her church, outside of her church, just people she heard about, and rebuking them about their sin. She thought that was her spiritual gift, right? And things got a little dicey when I told him that something his mother said was kind of crazy. She didn't like that at all. So we had to have a meeting with, with some of the elders and with his parents. And um, I always loved Rick Punkishar, who's an elder at City Church, East Nashville. Um, at one point, she, uh, she said, I said something like, I think this advice you gave your son, she basically said he couldn't move out and move into an apartment with some guys unless they all committed that girls would never cross the threshold of the door and come into their, room, their apartment at all. And I said, that's a little crazy. Yeah, she goes, well, I got it from an Elizabeth Elliott book. I was like, I don't care, it's still a little crazy. Um, no crack on Elizabeth Elliott. Well, I guess maybe a little bit. If she did say that, I don't know if she really did. But anyway, like she said, when I said that to her, she said, I rebuke the spirit of negativity in you. And um, my friend Rick Punkashar, who's an elder, he goes, what did you just do? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what, what just happened here. I don't even know what happened. Um, like, it seems to me if I'm here at eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning dealing with the situation, like it's pretty negative. Um, you, you can't just sort of whisk it away like rebuking, you know. <sighs> Hopefully that's not your spiritual gift. I would say that woman had the spiritual gift of being a peace breaker. And, I, and I'm kind of like that, sort of a bull in a china shop sometimes. Um, I make people cry, I know, maybe less than I used to. Um, and that you can thank my wife for. But a lot of people, like, they just think the point is either to get stuff off my chest so I feel better or to make or sort of like smooth things over so that, so that probably you feel better because if you smooth things over, probably you're holding it all inside. So either you're, you're committed to making other people feel better, which means you pretend that everything's fine when it's not, or you're just committed to getting stuff off your chest so that you feel better and you don't really care how other people feel. Neither one of those is what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness, first of all, is about stopping the spread of sin. And in a lot of ways, it's a good test for you on whether forgiveness is actually operating in a situation. It, it, to ask yourself questions like, do I really want this person to flourish? Do I really want this person to be blessed? Do I really want the kingdom of God to move forward in their life? Or do I just want to feel better myself? Um, the goal, you see, is really hugely important to identify. I've often said, uh, and, and, and I still, I'm going to say it again to you guys, because this is the good thing about college ministries. There's always people coming, so I need to say these things again. And it's good because I need to hear them again. But if you're really 
um, looking forward to rebuking somebody, you're not ready. If you're really looking forward to sort of seeing the log in someone else's eye, you, you know, in other words, almost a good test is when you really don't want to do it, but you know you have to for the good of the kingdom and for the good of this other person, then you're probably in the right posture to talk to somebody. The goal has to be stopping the spread of sin, both in you and in this other person. The second thing that's important to see in this section about what is forgiveness is it's an action, not a feeling. This, I think, is one of the most misunderstood things that there is. People feel like, well, I can't ever forgive this person. And what they mean by that is, I can't ever feel like this didn't happen. And the Bible actually doesn't tell you to forget. Forgive and forget is nowhere in the Bible. Do you know that? Forgive and forget is nowhere in the Bible. And a lot of people, I think, have taught this And it set up this sort of really unrealistic and I would say even unbiblical way of thinking about this. Because it makes people feel like I haven't really forgiven unless I don't think about this again or it doesn't ever bother me. No. Forgiveness is a commitment to not make the other person pay. It's an action. And it's one of those actions where the feelings usually will come after not before. Now, that's a hard thing for us because we live in a culture that is all about romanticism. It's all about authenticity, which is a way of saying that we're romantics at heart. In other words, we believe the deepest part of us is our feelings. That's the true self. And the best thing we can do is just let our true self have sort of free reign to do whatever it wants. And you get into this area of forgiveness and you're like, well, to really do forgiveness, I have to mean it. I have to feel it. Otherwise, it's inauthentic. The Bible says no. Listen, if this guy comes back to you seven times in a day and says, I repent, do you think he really means it? See, part of it, when I read that, probably some of you are thinking, like, that's kind of crazy advice. The guy comes to you seven times in one day. I mean, I don't know how long it takes you to actually have a meeting where you can talk about, you know, a wrong between people. But seven times in one day, it's, all, it's almost ridiculous kind of um, scenario that Jesus paints here. And he says, no matter what, and there's actually the other place, you know, where Peter asked him this question, one of the other gospels, and he says, how many times do I need to forgive? And he says, seven times, which the rabbis taught three times was all you needed to do. So Peter thought he was doing great because he doubled it and he added one. And Jesus says, no, Peter, 70 times seven. Now, you don't need to get hung up on which did he say. He probably said it both because he probably preached lots of sermons about forgiveness, right? And the point is you need to do it over and over and over and over again, which means it can't be based on this person's sincerity, which means it can't be a feeling. Do you really think that you can make your feelings go up and down, up and down, up and down seven times in a day? Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an action, In more particular, it's not based on performance or the other person's sincerity. Um, It's an action. It's something you do. And you might say, well, hold on a second. Because verse 3 says, if he repents, forgive him. But here's the interesting thing. And this is why you may want to look at Mark 11.25. Because there's this other saying of Jesus And to really understand aright this idea of forgiveness, you need to put these two together. And hopefully I'm going to help you see how they go together. In Mark 11, 25, Jesus says this. And he's talking about when you're at church, when you're worshiping, 
When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, there's no if they repent here. This is a blanket statement. If you're praying and anybody has anything against you, you have anything against them, forgive them. And the way I think you put these two things together is that what Jesus is saying in Mark 11 refers to your commitment. And what's going on in Luke, in our passage, is talking about the restoration and the reconciliation. See, it's vital for you to understand that forgiveness must be granted, but trust must be restored. And it's not the same thing. And that's really important. You see, a lot of people feel like, well, you know, yes, my you know, father did terrible things. He was crappy, beat the crud out of me. Um, but I need to forgive him. And therefore, I'm going to put myself back in that same situation again. That would be to equate and thus confuse forgiveness and restoration of trust. Very important that you hear that. The Bible does not tell you to put yourself in a situation where you're allowing yourself to be sinned against. And it's not just for you. It's because you're to be about stopping the spread of sin. And sometimes that may mean getting the heck out of Dodge. Because there's no other way for you to stop that person sinning against you and against God. Right? So forgive, but then this restoration, this trust being restored, is connected to sincerity. It is connected to, is this person trustworthy? And, and I would say, you know, I think, particularly in my experience with Christians, they tend to think, well, they tend to just think, it's funny to me. Because we have what I think is a robust doctrine of sin. Like, you know, we, at least in the, in the Christian faith, we have this idea, taught everywhere in the Bible, that you're worse than you think you are. And so is everybody else. And therefore, you should not be just blindly trusting people and thinking, well, they obviously mean well for me. No, a lot of them don't. And so... Yet, in, in spite of that, people have this idea, I guess, because Christians hear so much about forgiveness, that they should just forgive people and then try and act like nothing ever happened and not learn from it about whether or not this person could be trusted. Now, let me say a little more about this thing about um, forgiveness as the acceptance of a debt versus the forgive and forget thing. All right? So, you know, this, this word here in verse 4 um, is often translated, so it's translated forgive here, but it has a range of meanings in the Greek, and, and it's often translated more along the lines of let it be or consent. In other words, it's okay, like everything has settled, the account's settled. It's that kind of connotation. And so, you know, one of the things that we draw out of this is that forgiveness means to settle a debt and to say it's okay, it's, it's satisfied. There's no longer an outstanding debt. To forgive, in other words, means assume a debt. Here's the thing. When sin happens, hurt results. And somebody has to absorb it. For forgiveness to happen, somebody needs to pay. Right? Keller, Tim Keller has, has a good uh, talk on this. If you want to 
a, a really great tape to kind of supplement what we're talking about tonight. He has a, a thing on Redeemer.com called Forgiveness 2002. Is it? I thought it was three. Two. Okay. I believe my wife. He probably does it every year, <laughs> I guess. Uh, Forgiveness 2003. Okay. I looked at the outline today. It said 2002. You're sure? Okay. Well, it's on the podcast, so we better get it right. I'll get people writing me letters. Um, so he talks about this. The first thing you have to do to be able to assume the debt is you have to assess the damage. And, and again, a lot of people feel like this isn't Christian. They just sort of, I guess, kind of bandage over a wound too quickly sometimes, even when it's festering underneath. I know it's great imagery, but it's an ugly thing. And it, and it sort of seeps poison into your system if that healing is not really happened. So you have to assess the damage. When somebody sins against you, don't just say, ah, forget it. It was nothing. You don't help anybody out when you do that because you're saying, no, you didn't sin. You're not granting them forgiveness. You're just saying, ah, it doesn't matter. And you're setting up sort of this construct where, you know. Now, the Bible says love overlooks a multitude of sins. But the Bible also says in Galatians that if you see a brother trapped in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. So this teaching on forgiveness does not mean that you have to get at somebody every time they do any little thing, right? You should try to sort of deal with the big things, not just the little symptoms, okay? But there should be this sense of assessing, no, I really have been hurt here. There really has been a wrong. And I, a lot of people, I think, especially the peace faker kind of people, that, this is an important thing that you often gets skipped, they don't really assess what's happened. They don't really even want to admit they're wrong because it's like they don't want to be weak. You know, we hate to be weak. Some people would, would be miserable and depressed rather than be weak, right? And so it's important to assess the debt. But then, you know, Dan Allender is so helpful. His book, um, Bold Love, is a really helpful book in dealing with forgiveness and even strategizing how to love people that have hurt you. Highly recommend it. I give it out to students all the time. He says in here that, um, that forgiveness and forgetting is, is often wrongly brought out from this verse in Jeremiah. You know this verse in Jeremiah 31, you've probably heard it, where God promises um, to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, and I says, I will remember them no more. And here's what Allender says, and you, you can ponder this and think about this, right? Um, what Allender says is God is not saying here that he will suddenly develop amnesia. Rather, he's assuring us of his promises to not deal with us as our sins deserve. And here's his quote. I do not believe forgiveness involves forgetting the past and ignoring the damage of past or present harm. To do so, even if it were possible would be tantamount to erasing one's personal history and the work of God in the midst of our journey. The only way for the forgive and forget mentality to be practiced is through radical denial, deception, or pretense. Remember, guys, Jesus still bears the scars. Those are forever part of him. Okay? He's not, it's not, you know, the glory is, it says that God brings life out of death. Doesn't mean that for you to really kind of deal with your hurts, that you're just supposed to try to forget them. 
he's right. It's not possible, but it's not even, it's not even what you're called to do. You have to assess the debt. You have to understand that you're not called to forgive it. And I think a lot of people get stuck in this and feel like, well, I just can't forgive because they still think about it. There's stuff that happens to you that you're going to know and you're going to think about, right? So then what do you do? Well, you pay. To forgive means you pay rather than make the other person pay. Now, I'm going to talk about this a little bit. How do, how, do we make other, how do we make other people pay? There's all kinds. It probably has to do with sort of the power in the relationship, what kind of things you can do. You may just sort of move away from them relationally. You may just treat them coldly. You may actually cut them down around other people, try to destroy their reputation, but you'd never do it in front of them. You may actually, you know, physically attack them, do other kinds of things. But you're basically saying this debt is still outstanding. It's not been paid, and I'm going to remind you of it every chance I get, every way I can. The problem with that, of course, uh, as my friend Scotty Smith likes to say, Unforgiveness is the poison you drink, hoping someone else will die. Right? And the kingdom isn't going forward while that unforgiveness is out there. Because now you don't just have the sin against you, but now you're adding sin on top of that. Now listen. I love that verse in the Psalms where it says that he remembers that we are dust. God knows our finiteness. He talks about how he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. In the book of Isaiah, that's a beautiful image. When it comes to your forgiveness, you may be that smoldering wick, right? And you may just be able to barely, maybe all the only step you can take tonight is to ask somebody to pray for you to help you even find um, the ability to begin to start moving forward in this process. God is gentle, but God is also insistent that forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom. And it's not only what needs to happen for the good of his kingdom, it's what needs to happen for your good. We have to start making payments on the debt which means even to treat people, even to treat your enemies warmly, cordially. Again, this isn't the same thing as opening yourself up to more sin and more harm and more damage. In, in Romans, there's this fascinating place where Paul talks about this. It's in chapter 12. Uh, I put this on your little sheet. Listen to this. Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I like that. He understands it may not always be possible. You know, Jesus at one point said, Woe are you if all men speak well of you. So if you're somebody who's committed to having everybody like you, Jesus pronounces woes on you. But you already knew that because you already are like, I'm sure, bearing the, that curse if that's what you're trying to do. But he says, as far as it's possible, do what you can, but understand you may not be able to do everything because it's not just up to you. But look at this, verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to eat. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And, you know, scholars debate a lot. What is that burning coals on his head imagery? Is it a cleansing image? Like in doing this, you will be doing something that will help cleanse them of their evil? Or it is more like you're going to make them really miserable? I kind of take the second view. That, that, that showing kindness to your enemies has a way of, just has a way of changing them. It may actually make them more bitter. But, but uh, you know, what can you say? This is what God says. Do not repay evil for evil. In other words, again, you're supposed to stop the spread of evil as much as you can. Don't add your evil to the evil that's already happened. But also, don't let these people continue to sin as far as it's possible with you, right? All right. So, in other words, I guess the last thing I'd say about Romans 12 is you have to revoke your right for revenge without losing your hunger for it. Here's what Paul says to help people let go of needing to repay. And I know we all love to think about, I mean, that, that, what's that silly TV show on that's right now that's all about revenge with that girl? No, not the Bachelorette, but that's probably in there too. What is it called? It's called Revenge. Yeah, it's the show called Revenge is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. And you're like, man, I mean, there's something, there's something about watching that where you almost like sort of by osmosis, like, man, I don't at some level wish I could do that. And here's what God says. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. All things will be made right. There will be no loose ends. But God says it's not your job to repay. You're not very good at it, but I am. And everything will be made right. There is not a sin that's ever been committed that will not be judged to the fullest. Either on the person of Jesus or the people that did it will have to stand for it. Now that's very sobering. It's very sobering. And sometimes you have to ask, like, would I rather this person burn in hell or that they trust in Jesus? And that may be a hard issue you really need to wrestle with God about. Seriously. Because God offers mercy even to people that have sinned. Right? Otherwise, you would have no hope. And that's where we go next. Because here's what's interesting. Jesus talks about what forgiveness is. And what do the disciples say? I love this. Help. Increase our faith. And he says, yeah, faith is what you need. Even if you had a little bit of faith, like a mustard seed, which is like this little tiny seed, if you had enough faith uh, to, fit, to be like a mustard seed amount of faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, uproot yourself and throw yourself in the sea. And in Jesus' day, they often said that mulberry trees would stay planted, rooted 600 years. It was sort of, we know that from one of the Jewish writings, right? So it's a, it's a you know, provocative image, right? And then he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He, he tells them this story, and it's a weird story, isn't it? 
So they say, increase our faith. And he says, you're right, faith is what you need. And if you had just a little bit of it, why? Because at one level, their, their, their thing, like increase our faith, is a little bit misguided. Because the key is not how much faith you have, it's who your faith is in. There's a, a deep teaching of the Bible that's all through. The point is the object of your faith And so then he begins to teach them about this with this story. The story should teach them about humility. Now, I will say, in our day of, you know, negotiated labor contracts and, you know, um, OSHA and all these kinds of, like, this parable seems like crazy. But nobody in Jesus' day would have been offended by this setting, okay? So you have to try to put yourself back into this setting. Um, And we're not talking about um, people working, like, 12, 14-hour days and not getting to eat because this meal probably took place in the middle of the day, okay? In this culture, they generally made in the afternoon. And every servant would have said, yeah, this is part of my job to do this, okay? And what Jesus is saying is, look, none of you, and, and he expects this kind of answer, right? And he says, like, which of you would do that? Like, None of them would say, oh, I, I would do that. I would come in after working. I would come in and I would tell the master to fix me something to eat. No, he tells this story and he's telling this story to Middle Eastern peasants who are like, well, of course, Jesus, that would be ludicrous for any of us to expect the master to make us food. Um, that would be insane. Like in Jesus' parables, there's always kind of some outrageous thing that maybe would have even made people laugh out loud because it was so ridiculous. Often it doesn't seem as ridiculous to us because the cultural situation is different. In this parable, what would have seemed ridiculous is if the, the servant did anything different than what he does in the parable. Okay? To us, it seems kind of weird and almost seems like Jesus is teaching that you should take advantage of your employees. That's not the setting. Okay? And if I had more time, I'd talk more about that parable, but I'm just using it as part of our talk about forgiveness. So suffice to say that, okay? I've even got a podcast on this parable where I talk about more in detail if you want to go find it. Um, So what he's saying here is that you need to understand that everything you do and everything you have never gives you bargaining chips with God. This this is the, the heart of this parable. In other words, for you to be able to forgive, you first need humility. One of the hardest things about forgiveness is you always feel superior. And as long as you feel superior, why wouldn't you make them pay? And what Jesus is saying is you need to understand first and foremost who you are in the whole big picture of things. Anything that you have, you've gotten as a gift Even when you do your duty, that doesn't, therefore, give you kind of bargaining power to go to God and say, hey, you should do this and you should do that. So he teaches them about humility. And here's the thing to really understand that's so fascinating about this parable is that Jesus constantly refers to himself as the servant. They're always calling him master, right, his disciples, But he's trying to get them to understand, if you really want to know who I am, you have to understand, he says, I am among you as one who serves. He told them that a lot. And finally, on the very last night of his life, 
He took a basin and a towel, and he washed their feet, something that no Jewish servant would even be asked to do. And he takes it on himself. And of course, even beyond that, he goes to a cross, a place he didn't deserve. Not just to teach us about humility and say, hey, look at me. But to set you free so that you could humble yourself. We need humility, and Jesus gives it to us. We also need to understand that we've been forgiven and we've been cleansed. Leprosy in the Bible is interesting. It's, it's typically regarded not as healed, but as cleansed. It stands as a metaphor for sin and the way it makes you unclean. And there's this amazing picture, right? Ten, ten lepers, they're standing off at a distance like they're supposed to do. They're not allowed to come anywhere near people that don't have leprosy. They call out, and they're healed. And it's one of those things where, like, they just are walking. He tells them, go show yourself the priest. That's what they should have done if they were cleansed from leprosy. The priests were the ones to certify that, that they were actually indeed cleansed. And only one comes back. Now, a lot of people say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be divine in the Bible. That was Paul and other people that made that up later. This is one of those passages where he very clearly is claiming divine prerogatives. Because it says here that the guy throws himself at his feet. And it's the Greek word that talks about prostrating yourself. It's one of the three or four basic words used for worship. So Jesus heals these guys. One guy gets, comes back, throws himself at Jesus' feet, and is worshiping him. And Jesus doesn't say, get up, you blasphemer. I'm just a good teacher. No, he says, where are the other nine? They should all be here. And, and when you hear this story, if you're, if you're one of the disciples, you're hearing this story, who do you think you are? Are you one of the nine? Are you the one who has thrown yourself at Jesus' feet because he's cleansed you in a, in a way that you never could have cleansed yourself. In other words, when you understand, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, it gives you heart capital. It gives you a bank account, if you will. See, if you understand what Jesus has done for you, here's the problem with forgiveness. We don't think we can afford it. We're called to pay, but we don't feel we can afford it. How can I give up some of my joy by forgiving this person? And the only reason that that doesn't make sense to us is because we don't realize how much joy is actually available. We, we assess our condition and we feel like we're basically bankrupt already. And what Jesus says is, no. You've been cleansed. You've been given everything. I made myself a servant to set you free, right? Now, here's the thing, you know. You know that you have to be rich to forgive. You know why? Because the most difficult things for you to forgive are the places where you feel most insecure, right? There are probably things that happen to you that, that are no big deal. But then there are those other things. So let's say if you're particularly insecure about your desirability romantically and somebody, 
you know, takes you out on a date, and then they never call. They just kind of blow you off. Do you think that's going to bother you? You better believe it. Because you don't feel like you can afford any kind of, you know, any kind of payment in that area. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, if you feel like I don't really have hardly any friends and then one of the people you think is your friend betrays you, that's going to be much more difficult to forgive than, than probably other things, right? What that means is unless you see yourself as fabulously wealthy, you're not going to be able to forgive. And what the gospel says, the good news of the gospel is you are fabulously wealthy. You can afford you can afford for people to not love you perfectly well because there is one who does. There is one who will never let you down and loves you so much he went to a cross to die in your place. Forgiveness is costly, but it brings healing. It's also the door into understanding the Lord's forgiveness. I'll, I'll say this last thing and then have a question or two if you want. I, I think that one of the reasons God calls us to forgive, not beyond all the other things I've said, is it's one of the best doorways for you to understand what it's like to love you. Uh, my friend Scott Rowley said one time, I, I've always loved this, he was preaching a sermon, he goes, you know what? God knows what it's like to be in a bad marriage because he's married to you. You think God doesn't understand what it's like to be in a relationship with somebody that doesn't return your phone calls, kind of blows you off, sort of calls you up when they feel like it, but most of the time just ignores you? That's what Jesus is like. He's like that. He's in a relationship like that with you, and he still loves you. And, and one of the best ways to begin to understand the love of God and what it means really that he's patient and long-suffering. I love that old King James word. There's no substitute for it. God is long-suffering with us. And the more, see, it really is almost like this, this balance. Like if all the hurts against you outweigh the mercy of God towards you, you'll never really be able to forgive. And it's because you don't really understand how long-suffering God is with you and with me. It's always like that with me. It's always like this thing here that this person has done to me seems so huge, and this thing that Jesus has done for me seems so little and trivial. And that's never right. <laughs> that's never right. And, and I'm never going to be able to deal with this until this that Jesus did grows and grows in my heart. It's already huge. I'm just seeing a little bit of it. But one of the ways I can see more is to say, you know, this person really betrayed me. And then I think, well, Jesus doesn't really understand. Oh, yeah, he was betrayed with a kiss. Um, I guess he does understand that. Well, he doesn't know what it's like to be violated. He was stripped naked and hung on a cross. People spat on him, right? You've got to keep letting even this like, God, this is too big for me. I can't, I can't forgive this, not this. And you've got to let that propel you back into, but has Jesus ever suffered like this? 
And what did Jesus say? He was hanging on a cross. Father, forgive them. So he's hanging on a cross being tortured. Almost his last words. Father, forgive them. Let's pray.